Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. began moving verse by verse through Genesis back in March, I believe. So we're, we're in June, but we're getting there, and the pace will pick up. And, uh, but uh, there's so much that's so important in these verses. And uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is, is the foundation for the rest of the Bible, and it has some of those truths that are foundational uh, to your joy and your peace in Christ. And so uh, they're worth spending time on. I want to begin by reading Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. We'll meet Cain and Abel. Up to this point, the human race has been made up of only two human beings. But now, Adam and Eve, fallen yet redeemed, have been given the blessing of children. Now, they've been given the blessing of children, but it's not how it would have been originally had there been no fall. Now, because of man's sin, Eve's labor was certainly accompanied by pain. These children that she gives birth to are born not with pure, innocent natures, but with sinful natures. And there's no guarantee that these children will repent and turn to God the way she and Adam did. Nevertheless, Adam and Eve bear two sons. Can you imagine Adam and Eve waiting for the birth of that first child? Pregnancy was a new thing to them. It had never happened to anyone before. It was new. It was a new thing. And so days and weeks and months passed by with Cain forming in Eve's womb. And God had promised to Eve that she would produce a he, right? Genesis 3.15, who would, who would slay the serpent, who would bruise his head, the serpent who had led them into so much harm. And so as they waited for the birth of this child day by day, week after week, I wonder how many times they remembered that promise and just wondered if this child would be the one. Would this child be the Messiah that they were waiting for? They did not know, of course, that Jesus would come thousands of years later. Well, finally, the child arrived, and it was a son And so perhaps this really was the He. This really was the promised one. 
And they had been waiting for so long, it seemed, and so they named him Cain, which means gotten. We've gotten him. He's come. It's the idea behind the name Cain. It can also be translated as meaning brought forth, right? We have brought forth this child, and, and this is a celebration of the fact that even though man had been wicked and sinful, God still blessed Adam and Eve with this ability to bring forth another human being. And so Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You see that in verse 1? She named him Cain, gotten, brought forth. I have gotten or brought forth a man with the help of the Lord. Now that's the way most translations render it. Um, You need to know that we are not at all certain that that's exactly what Eve said. Um, The Hebrew does not include the words, with the help of. Rather, on the face of the Hebrew, literally the verse reads, Eve says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. But translators don't don't translate it that way because it raises questions. How can Eve give birth to the Lord? And so they take a, a Hebrew preposition that usually refers to the object of a sentence, and they take that and they say it must mean something else. It must mean a, a, a different kind of phrase. And so they think that that must mean with the help of. But many people have come along and said they don't think that's right. They think that Eve said, I have gotten a man, the Lord. And that what she is saying there is not, I have given birth to God but that rather she's using the term Lord as deliverer, as Savior. And so that she actually does think, maybe this is the one. This is Cain. Perhaps he is the one who will save us, who will bruise that serpent and make things right again. However, it doesn't appear to have been very long before Adam and Eve realized that this one would not be the Messiah. As Cain began to grow and develop, his sinfulness certainly broke Adam and Eve's hearts. They had hoped he would be one to serve God in a major way. Instead, they see the sinfulness of their little boy. And so by the time their second child comes along, Abel, their optimism appears to be gone because they name Abel, Abel, which means vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness. In fact, it's the same word used both at the beginning and the end of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. In the Hebrew, that's able of able, says the preacher. All is able. All is meaningless. All is empty. That appears to have been how Adam and Eve felt by the time Abel was born. Their hopes had been, in a sense, dashed with Cain. Their their faith was now being severely tested. And not until the end of chapter 4 do we find them again saying something positive. Do we hear hopeful words from the mouth of Eve? Now, Cain grew to become a farmer. Abel grew to become a shepherd. So we here see again that God's purpose for man to exercise dominion over the earth through procreation, through various forms of work, begins to come to fruition even in these sinful young men. The curse made these more difficult, but it did not take away that instinctive, God-given human drive 
that we have as human beings to work with our hands and to, to do things in this world with God's creation. Cain and Abel both took on vocations, kinds of work that bring order to God's creation. Cain would later get married and have children. And those commands given to man at creation were now being fulfilled in their lives and in their descendants. Well, in verses 3 and 4, we come upon a particular day in the life of Cain and Abel. We find Cain and Abel bringing offerings to God. And we're told in verse 3 that they brought offerings to God, quote, in the course of time. Now, as I've mentioned before, the Hebrew here literally reads, at the end of days. At the end of days. So some people think that at the end of days must refer to the end of the harvest season. And that that's why they come bringing offerings. Other thinks that this refers to the end of their calendar year. But it seems much more likely to me and that we've already seen God establish a seven-day week saying the end of the week, the last day, is to be the day of worship. It seems to me that this is probably a Sabbath day. This is the end of days, the end of the seven-day period. Cain and Abel come on that last day to bring offerings before their next week of work. Now all of this, the fact that Cain and Abel are here being seen bringing offerings to God, all of this seems to imply that God must have re revealed some things to Adam and Eve and to Cain and Abel that are not recorded for us in the Bible. Because it is very doubtful that, that Cain and Abel just came up with this idea of taking sacrifices to God on their own and worshiping God on their own. Rather, it seems that God must have revealed to them how He wanted them to worship Him and taught them about bringing these offerings. As we will note next week, God's rebuke of Cain for his sinful offering assumes that Cain knows the difference between an acceptable offering and an unacceptable offering, right? Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Implication, Cain, you know what it is to worship well. In other words, Cain's sin was not a sin of ignorance. It wasn't that he wanted to worship God well, he just didn't know how because God hadn't told him. No, this, these verses imply that God had revealed how he was to be worshipped and that Cain knew how he was to worship God, and yet he was choosing not to do so. That's why God can say, you know better. If you do well, will you not be accepted? So even here, long before the giving of, of God's law at Mount Sinai, it seems likely that God had already revealed to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel instructions about how he was to be worshipped. Now these are the first offerings that we find in the Bible. And we should note here that from the beginning, human beings have been called to honor God by giving to Him something of what we have gained. As we fulfill the dominion mandate, as we use our gifts and our abilities to work with God's earth, we're to bring the best of what we've produced to God. Cain was to bring the best of his fruit, of his crops. Abel was to bring the best of his flocks. And this was meant to be an expression of humility, a way of recognizing that, that none of their work would have been possible without God, and that ultimately all of their work was to bring glory to Him. What we have here is the beginning of, of a tithe principle, the idea of, of bringing 10%, bringing the, the top or the best of what you have to God as a sign of worship. Now here's the question that this passage forces us to think about. 
Why was Cain's offering rejected when Abel's offering was accepted? Some think that it was because Abel brought an animal sacrifice and Cain didn't, but brought crops. They argue that it was animal sacrifices that pointed to the coming Messiah. And the fact that Cain didn't bring an animal sacrifice showed that he didn't care about the purpose of the offerings. Now the problem with that view is that later in the Bible, mainly in Leviticus, God established laws for His people which allows them to bring either an animal offering or at other times a grain offering. And so it does not seem appropriate to me that God would, would be saying here that only animal offerings were accepted. So I, I don't think that's the issue. I don't think that's why Cain's offering was rejected. Another suggestion is that there was nothing wrong with Cain's offering externally. Only the motivation of his heart. That God could see into Cain's heart and knew that he was not bringing his offering with, with a genuine spirit of love and gratitude and worship and joy. And so though, though his offering was right externally, it was internally impure. And so God rejected his offering. Now I think it is absolutely true that Cain's heart was acting wickedly in the way he brought this offering. But I also think that that expresses itself in something external about his offering. I agree with those who point out that Abel brought the best of what he had. The most prized of his flocks. He brought the firstborn. He brought their fat portions. The portions that were considered the best of the best in the ancient world. And yet there is no indication that Cain did the same. He did not appear to bring the best of what he had. Abel showed his love for God and bringing God his best, but Cain seems to have brought only in what he thought would be enough to appease God. Now, if I'm right about that, the application for us is that when we come to worship, we ought to bring our best. And I'm not talking about money so much. I'm talking about us when we come to worship. Do we get our rest on Saturday nights? so that we can come with our best on Sunday morning, an attentive mind, an engaged heart. We need to be eager, full participants in the praying, the singing, the, the giving, the listening to God's Word. We want to come able to give the best of what we have and nothing less. We do not want to be modern canes who come in with this idea that we're doing God a favor and we're going to do our Sunday duty, get it over with so He can be appeased and we can go on. No. Worship is to be from the heart. It's something we love to do. Sunday's supposed to be the best day of our week. It's a time when we gather together to, to honor our common Savior. And so we want to be at our best for Sunday. Now, whatever it was about Cain's offering that caused God to be displeased, I think there's one point that is very clear in these verses. And here it is. God cares about how we worship Him. God does care about how we worship Him. We need to understand that there is a kind of worship that is acceptable to God. And there is a kind of worship that is not acceptable to God. There is a kind of worship that is worshiping well. 
God had regard for Abel's offering. But there is a kind of worship that is not worshiping well and causes God not to have regard for what we bring to Him. And this is important for us to see because we live in a day when it seems like most churches and many Christians, when, when planning worship services or thinking about Sunday, they do not ask first, what kind of worship does God like? But rather, what kind of worship do we like? We've turned worship on its head, making it less about pleasing God and more about pleasing us. We've forgotten that worship is meant to be Godward, directed towards Him. God is to be the audience in our worship. We are the participants in the worship. God is the one who receives the worship. Now, I think this is really important because we live in a culture that has lost this. Worship has become such a man-centered thing. We'll get in a room and debate. Well, I like this kind of worship. Well, I think this is how we ought to do it. It doesn't matter what you think. It's not worship for you. It's worship for God. What kind of worship has He revealed that He desires and finds pleasing? So we're going to dwell here for a couple of weeks. Um, it's been a long time since I've preached on this, and it is important, so I, I want to do that. But tonight, uh, I'm only going to enforce this one point. Because this point is so important, and if we don't get it, nothing else I say the next couple of weeks will mean anything to you. So we need to get this one point, not just in here, but we need to understand it, we need to grasp it, it needs to be in our hearts. And the point is this, that God really does care about this. How we worship Him does matter. So what I want to do is show you that from several places in the Scripture. I offer to you as evidence A, Cain and Abel. Does not this passage teach that God does care how we worship? The fact that both brought an offering, the fact that both Cain and Abel brought an offering does not appear to have been enough. God didn't just care that they brought an offering. He cared that he be worshipped well. He cared that he be worshipped in spirit and truth. And thus, for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of Cain's soul, he would not accept Cain's sinful offering. But there are many more places in the scriptures that teach this truth. Think about the first four of the Ten Commandments. All four of the first Ten Commandments seem to deal particularly with worship. The first commandment tells us who we are to worship, right? What is the first commandment? Thank you. You should have no other gods before me. We are to worship one God and worship alone. We are to worship Yahweh, the God who created the world. We're to worship the God who led Israel out of Egypt. We're to worship the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. We're not to worship any other gods. We're to worship the one true God. Now, that's the first commandment. The second, third, and fourth commandments don't deal so much with who we worship, but how we worship. In fact, it seems crazy that we can act as if God doesn't care how we worship when three of His Ten Commandments are devoted to this issue of how we worship. The second commandment says that God is not to be worshipped through images, right? I mean, this was the thing to do in the ancient world. This was all the rage. Every other culture in the ancient Near East worshipped their 
mythological gods through images, idols that they could touch, that they could see. This is what the people expected. This is what the people wanted. And yet God called Israel to be different and distinct in their worship. No image can come close to accurately depicting the character of the true God. He and he alone was to direct Israel in their worship. Idolatry was not to be used. Third commandment. What's the third commandment? I can wait. That's right. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When we, now, that's true for all of life, isn't it? that we should never use the name of our Lord in a sinful or meaningless way. But it is particularly true when it comes to the worship of God. It is particularly true when it comes to us gathering together as people, that when we pray to God, when we read the Scriptures, when we sing songs to Him, we're not to do so in a vain, empty way, but we're to do so with, with heartfelt reverence and with honor in a way that is meaningful. God's name should be treated with dignity in our worship. And then the fourth commandment teaches that we are to set aside one particular day for the worship of God. All of our lives are to be worshipped, but one in seven is to be set aside as a day of rest from our normal labors so that we can devote that day to a unique kind of God's worship, uh, a day spent particularly on spiritual things and a day spent with God's people. So you see, these commandments speak to the manner of our worship to God. And remember how these commandments were given. God spoke to the whole gathering of Israelites in His own thunderous voice from Mount Sinai. And He spoke in such a way that the people begged Moses, go, you go talk to God privately on the mountain. Don't let us hear that voice again. They were so scared. God's voice was accompanied by thunder and lightning. And we are told that God Himself took these Ten Commandments and inscribed them into tablets of stone. Does that sound like something minor to God? Does it sound like God doesn't care how we worship? No. He cares so much that He made all of these visible things evident to show His care. The thunder, the lightning, the booming voice, the stone tablets were meant to say these commandments matter. Evidence C comes right after that in the account of the golden calf. See, apparently the people of Israel did not understand at first. So that when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai that first time, he finds them being led by his brother Aaron in worshiping Yahweh. They weren't worshiping a pagan god. In Exodus 32, they are worshiping the God who led them out of Egypt. But they're worshiping Him the way every other culture around them worshiped their gods, through this image through this created thing that's supposed to be a depiction. Well, certainly, with all the other cultures around them living this way, certainly God would understand, right? Certainly God would say, well, that's just their ignorance. But no. For the sake of His own glory and for the sake of their souls, He did not allow that to continue, but responded drastically and dramatically. In verse 10, God declares that His wrath is burning hot. He says He intends to consume the whole nation. Only the prayers of Moses cause God to relent. 
Then God gathers for Himself the tribe of Levi, and He commands the tribe of Levi to kill those people that were involved in the worship of this calf. And in verse 28 of Exodus 32, we learn that 3,000 people were slaughtered that day because they worshipped God inappropriately. Finally, in verse 33 of Exodus 32, we're told that those who sinned against God in that way would have their names blotted out of His book. This is serious, isn't it? This is no small thing. Move a little further into Leviticus 10, and it gets very personal for Aaron. When his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, worship God in a way differently than God had commanded. And this passage, Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, if you want to see it, uh, Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, it, it's interesting because it shows that God really does care how we worship because there's no indication at all that Nadab and Abihu had any wickedness in their hearts. They didn't come to this, it, there's no indication that they came to the worship of God and said, we want to do this wickedly. No, they were just careless. They were just careless about the laws. And so they offered incense to God in a way different than the way God had prescribed. And God's punishment was swift and severe. We're told that fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You see, by acting carelessly in the worship of God, these two priests, set a terrible example for the people, teaching them by their very actions that God's word could be trifled with. God spoke to Aaron through Moses and said, Among those who are near me, and who was nearer to God in Israel than the priests? Aaron and his sons. God said to Aaron through Moses, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, that is, holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, Aaron, I have killed your sons. And the reason I've done so is that because what they did dishonored me before the people and would ultimately lead the people of Israel down a path of not loving me or showing respect for me. And so for the sake of my glory and for the sake of the good of God's people... These men were struck down simply for being careless in worship. Do you think carelessness in worship happens today? Do you think most people in God's houses on Sunday morning take God's worship seriously? If God cares how we worship this much, should we not care how we worship? So often it's all about us just don't really feel into it today. It's not about you. Is your God worthy of the worship or not? You'd be surprised what he, how, how not only His glory is exalted, but, but you can find yourself blessed when you do something that maybe you didn't feel like doing when you first came in because He's worthy of it. Another piece of evidence, Deuteronomy 12, 32. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 12, 32. This is God's clear command. Everything that I command... By the way, this is in the context of worship. He's talking about the worship of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 12, 32, he says, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. Everything that I command you concerning worship, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. 
So Israel, I've told you how I want you to worship me. Now don't add to that and don't take away from it. But do as I say. Now you say, Justin, we live in a very different world than those people did. People today, they don't want sermons, especially not 40-minute sermons like I preach. They don't want long prayers. It makes them sleepy. They don't want offerings. It's, it's, it's disrespectful to outsiders when they come in and the offering plate is passed. They don't like the, the old hymns anymore. What today's people want are skits, dramas, you know, people acting on, on stage. They want multimedia video presentations. They want special effects. They want the preacher to ride in on a Harley up to the stage, right? Y'all think that's funny, but last year at the Southern Baptist Pastors Conference where they're supposedly bringing in the best of the best to set an example for us of what we ought to be doing they brought in a preacher who went on and on they even showed the video of him riding his Harley up to the stage in his worship service and there were props everywhere and all kinds of gizmos and and that's what it was it was laughable but that's what people want people want to be entertained People want to have, you know, uh, great music groups come in to sing and to entertain them. Let's, let's keep the, the preaching part short, if have it at all. I think this is never more evident than on Easter Sunday morning. Have you ever driven around town the week before Easter Sunday and just looked at the signs of the churches? Easter Sunday is one of the top Sundays of the year where people who are unbelievers who normally do not come to church will be found in churches. If there was ever a time when the preaching of the gospel should be preeminent, would it not be Easter Sunday morning? And there is not another service during the church year where preaching is most often left out than Easter Sunday morning because everybody has their special presentation. They do a kind of worship that God never commanded them to do. And they take out a kind of worship that God has explicitly commanded us to do. And not only is God's glory hurt by that, but those people that leave that Easter Sunday morning having not heard a clear message of the gospel pressed on their consciences and hearts, left the worse because of that. I think God cares about those things. We could go on and on with more of these scriptures in for Samuel 15, we could look at Saul's unlawful sacrifice. And how, do you remember God's punishment for, for Saul? Because he offered God's sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel to come and do it like the law required? God took the kingdom from Saul. He removed Saul as king because he did not worship God appropriately. In fact, Samuel comes to Saul and God speaks through Samuel. And here's what Samuel says to Saul. God speaking, God says, to obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, Saul, yes, the sacrifice is, more impor- is, is important. But what I'm looking at when I want my people to worship me, what I'm looking for is obedience. In other words, it's the heart of the matter that I'm interested in. And I'll know whether they love me. I will see whether they're grateful. I will see whether they are um, longing to commune with me by whether or not they care enough and respect me enough to do worship obediently. The sacrifice isn't actually the issue. The songs, the preaching, the giving, that's not even really the issue. It's the fact that they want to do it obediently that's the issue. To obey is better than sacrifice. 
Similarly, in our preaching, our praying, our singing, our giving, our taking of the Lord's Supper, and every other element that God has prescribed for our worship, the chief issue is this. Do we love and respect and fear God enough to do these things in the proper way? Sloppy worship, worship that is not in accordance with the Scriptures, is evidence of hearts that do not truly reverence God as He deserves to be reverenced. Prideful people produce disobedient worship, but humble people worship obediently. All this goes back to the issue of faith. Do we believe that God is smarter than us? Do we believe that God is wiser than us? Do we believe that He knows better than us what is best both for His glory and for our everlasting good? Do we? Don't we believe that God knows better than us what is good for us? Well, if so, should we worship according to how we see fit or according to how He has said is best for us? I mean, it seems obvious, doesn't it? Any little kid can see it. Worshiping God as we see fit rather than as God has told us to worship, is is worshiping in faithlessness. It means that we have decided we don't trust God enough to tell us what is best for us. We lack faith in our worship. You see, when we worship according to the way God has called us to worship, we're worshiping in faith. God, you told us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. God, you told us to listen to the preaching of the Word. God, you've told us to come together and to pray together. And so, Father, those are the things you've told us to do. We trust you. We trust that those are what you're going to use to make us happy, that those are what you're going to use to save our souls, that those are what you are going to use to lift your name and make yourself glorious among us, that those are what you are going to use to make us salt and light in this world. God, we could worship those other ways. We could follow the culture. We could follow the world. We could bounce from fad to fad. But you've told us what is best. We trust you. could talk about Uzzah and the ark, 2 Samuel 6. Uzzah was struck down by the Lord because he touched the ark, something he was not supposed to do. We could go to the prophets, see so many passages in which God shows how important the worship of his people is to him. And particularly, we could learn from the prophets that God cares not only about how our worship is done externally, but He very much cares about the motive of our hearts. But maybe all that was just Old Testament. Maybe all that was, was true in the Old Testament, but we don't live in the Old Testament. We live in New Testament days. Aren't we now free to worship God however we want? Hasn't God now said he, he doesn't care how we worship Him? Of course not. Just as God was concerned with how His people worshipped Him in the Old Testament, back with Cain and Abel, He cares about how His people worship Him today. I'll give you a couple of New Testament examples. Evidence F, I think is where we are. Jesus' reproach of the religious leaders in Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, 7 through 9, we have Jesus rebuking... Let me just read it. Go with me to Matthew 15. Look with me there. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. 
Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. And he says in verse 7, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders because they have been teaching their own man-made traditions as if they were the Word of God. In fact, they were actually teaching traditions that would cause people to disobey the Word of God. And so Jesus relates that to worship. Notice that He says that this is a... Um, that their failure to worship God with a right spirit is what makes their worship vain. Their mouths say good things, but their heart is out of step. In the same way, we on Sunday morning or Sunday evening, we can worship with our mouths, but our heart might be out of step. Our heart might not be engaged in what we are doing. And if our heart is not in a proper frame of, of worship, then our worship is vain. Now, now, real quickly, that doesn't mean that you always come into church and you always start worshiping with pure, exuberance, heartfelt worship. Some Sundays you won't feel that. But even when you feel little inkling, not, not much inkling at all, of heartfelt love for God, if your motivation in your heart is, well, God has called me to do this and I trust Him, so I'm going to sing anyway. I'm going I'm to be engaged in this prayer anyway. I'm going to pay attention to this sermon anyway. Then that's worshiping God with your heart. God honors that. But it's when our heart shuts off and says, you know what? I just don't feel any love for God today. So I'm just going to shut off. I'm going to think about lunch. I'm going to plan my week. Now that's empty worship. That's vain worship. It's not worship at all. And yet look at the second part of the quote. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here the issue is whether or not worship is according to truth. God has prescribed that teaching and preaching is to be a part of worship. And His truth is to be exalted in the hearing of His people. But the Pharisees added to that teaching. Rather than honoring God by teaching God's truth, they dishonored God by adding to that truth, teaching their own man-made commandments and doctrines. They were preaching something other than God's truth. And similarly, when, when we sing songs that sound really great but do not accurately teach God's truth, we sing in vain. And if I preach a sermon and every single person leaves this place saying, that sermon was great, but I did not accurately preach God's truth, that sermon is in vain. It will ultimately do you no spiritual good. And it certainly will not do God's glory. Give God's glory the due it deserves. We must worship according to truth. Isn't that what Jesus said? You could call that evidence G, the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman has a, a question for Jesus, John 4. Her people, the Samaritans, worship not in Jerusalem, but on a mountain in Samaria. In fact, they had built their own temple there in Samaria, as opposed to the temple in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans believed that this was okay. It's okay for us to worship in this temple in Samaria, even though the, uh, the Jews have their temple in Jerusalem. But the Jews disagreed. They said that the only place to worship the true God was at the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the Holy of Holies was. 
And so she asked Jesus what he thought about this. What would Jesus say? And Jesus' ultimate answer is that there is coming a day, and that day is now here, when it wouldn't matter where the, the physical temple was. Because God's people would be his temple. God's spirit would dwell in his people. And yet, even teaching that truth, Jesus still gives a very gentle rebuke to the woman. In John 4, he says, You know what you worship, what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now, whatever else that verse might mean, it seems to be a rebuke of the fact that the Samaritans had chosen to build a temple and worship God in a place where God had not prescribed. It was God who had willed for the temple to be built. It was God who gave the instructions for the temple and chose the place for the temple in Jerusalem. And so by building a competing temple and worshiping God there in Samaria, the Samaritans were disobeying God. They were worshiping in a way he had not commanded. One last example. Evidence H is Paul's teaching to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14. If you want to see evidence that God cares even about the small particulars of the way we worship, look at what Paul says about the worship service of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 is an entire chapter of Holy Spirit-inspired correction for the worship service of the Corinthian church. Their worship had become chaotic. It had lost order. It had lost its priorities. The word of God was not being proclaimed as it ought. The spiritual gifts were not being used in an appropriate way. And so the entire chapter is devoted to helping the Corinthians learn to worship well in a way that God regards probably remember 1 Corinthians 14 40 it ought to be important to us all things should be done decently and in order right God cares that our worship has decency about it and orderliness about it well we could go on we could look at the book of Colossians the Colossian Christians had began to in, begun to include the worship of angels in their worship services, and Paul rebukes them for that and shows that that is not a worship that God regards. There was a false humility about their worship that Paul writes to them about. And yet I think I've made my point. Have you gotten the point? From Genesis to Revelation, we could look. God genuinely cares about how we worship. So let me close this way. God cares about how we worship Him because His glory is tied up in how we worship Him. Imagine an unbeliever coming into a church service. What does it say to that unbeliever if all the songs are trite little praise courses that just repeat the same words over and over and over, contain little truth, and all the Christians around Him are just trying to get into a feeling of worship? What does that tell him about God? Won't that unbeliever leave thinking, well, one, God must not care much about truth. God must care a lot about getting people into these worshipful feelings. Now, is that an accurate representation of God? No. No. What does it say to the unbeliever? If he comes into a church service, or she comes into a church service, and the sermon is 12 minutes long, 
that tell the unbeliever that God must be really important, worth learning about, worth hearing about, that His truth is worthy of our careful attention and study? Or does the unbeliever leave thinking, well, this must not have been all that important? You see, well, if the praying is short and insincere, if the songs are all glib, will the unbeliever leave thinking that this God is a God deserving of reverent awe and honor? Probably not. In fact, I think many unbelievers leave modern worship services seeing God as just some good old buddy in the sky who is kind of a pushover that wants everybody to be happy because that's what most worship services have become. A big desire to try and make everybody happy rather than focusing our attention on a a holy God. There will be no fear of God in that person's heart when he or she leaves. But what about when the worship is serious? What about when the worship is joyful yet serious? What about when it is clear that the church is being careful in worship to do things well and right? What does it say when the church sings heartily, loudly, great and mighty truths about their God? What does it say when they are more concerned about proclaiming truth through song than they are about working into some kind of feeling? What does it say when the prayers are filled with contrition and repentance and adoration and a pleading for God to bless and be merciful? What does it say when the sermon is substantial, filled with important truths that have a bearing on our lives and on our souls? In other words, church, what the world thinks about God will often reflect what they've seen in the worship of God's people. Let me say that again. How the unbelieving world views our God will often be simply based off of what they've seen in the worship of God's people. God's glory among the world is tied up in what the world sees in the church. We show God to the world. And so if our worship is full of trite little things that we do, but there's no reverence, there's no fear of God, there's no carefulness, there's no sobriety and sober-mindedness, there's no joyful seriousness. If it's not there, people would leave with such a little view of God. Either He's unimportant, or He's not worthy of my reverence, or He's not worthy of my careful attention. There's a second reason why God cares how we worship. And it's because our good is tied up in how we worship Him. For not, Listen very carefully to this, church. I'm at the end, but I want you to hear this. Not only do others have their vision of God shaped by how we worship God, but we ourselves have our vision of God shaped by how we worship Him. Whether or not we fear God, whether or not we have holy respect and reverence for Him as we ought, will often be birthed out of the kind of worship we do together as a church on Sunday. If we spend all our time singing songs that are just pure stories about... I'm not going to say something. If our songs are not focused on the gospel and what Christ has done, if our preaching is not substantial if our prayers are not serious and earnest, then we ourselves leave with a lower view of God. We ourselves leave 
with a less of an inclination in our hearts to love him and to have reverence for him. Put it clearly. If we treat God lightly on Sunday, we will treat God lightly on Monday. Amen? Do you agree with that? So you see, it is God's great love for you that is responsible for why He cares so much how we worship Him. He is not sitting up in heaven saying, I want you to worship me well, and if you don't, I'm going to strike you down because I'm a mean, hateful God. No. He loves you. And He cares about how you see Him. He knows your everlasting happiness is tied up in your vision of who He is. And so it is His love for you that causes Him to be so concerned about how you worship. Do you see that? You see that? He knows what is best for us. He knows what will ultimately bring us the greatest joy. He and He alone has communicated to us through His Bible what our worship ought to look like. And now the question is this. Will we trust Him? All right. Next Sunday morning, um, we will talk about the fact that God has revealed how we are to worship Him in the Bible. And we will spend next Sunday morning and then the following Sunday looking at what God has told us to do in worship. Basically, this is a time for me to share with you why we do what we do. Um, We're coming up on five years that I've been with you at Mount Hermon. And I've loved all of it, believe it or not. I've loved all of it, even even the hard times. I've, I've loved ultimately because God's good was involved in it all. But there are some things that I really want us to know well. And this is something we really need to know well. I want to make sure that we as a church have a single unified vision of what our worship ought to look like as a church. This is not something to be disunified about. We need to have one mind about this so that we can be salt and light when unbelievers come in among us. So this is serious. It's joyful. It's wonderful. But it's serious. So I hope we'll give our prayers and attention to it.